0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Thank you. Let me lay out a few things first by way of establishing a context – This is about national security, and if you're anything like the civilians I've dealt with in the past, you're about to ask what it's got to do with you. So I'd like to nail that down first so we can skip the stupid questions later. Clear? You nod, warily. National security is a weasel term that covers a multitude of sins, but you'll let it pass for now. Whose national security is the next question you've got in mind? This is the 21st century, and we're in the developed world. You're probably thinking wars something that happens in third-world shitholes a long way away. And to a degree, you'd be right. Modern warfare is capital-intensive. It hasn't really been profitable for decades. It was already a marginal proposition back in 1939, when Hitler embarked on his pan-European asset-stripping spree. His government would have been bankrupt by March 1940 if he hadn't invaded Poland and France. It's even worse today. When the Americans tried it in Iraq... They spent nine times the value of a country's entire oil reserves conquering a patch of desert full of a – sorry, I'm rambling – pet hobby horse. But anyway, back in the 18th century, von Clausewitz was right about war being the continuation of diplomacy by other means. Today, in the 21st, the picture's changed. It's all about enforcing economic hegemony, which is maintained by broadcasting your vision of how the global trade system should be structured. And what we're facing is a real headache. A freeway struggle to be the next economic hegemon. Who is we? That's the question you're asking yourself. He carries on. We, for these purposes, is the intellectual property regime we live in. Call it the European system. The other candidates are the People's Republic of China and India. America isn't in play. They've only got 350 million people. And once we finish setting up the convergence criteria for Russian accession to the Group of 30, the EU will be over seven hundred. China and India are even bigger. More to the point, the US went post-industrial first. Their infrastructure's out of date, and replacing it, now oil is no longer cheap, is costing them tens of trillions of euros to modernise. And they've got all those rusty aircraft carriers to keep afloat. It's exactly the same problem Britain faced in the 1930s, the one that ultimately bankrupted the empire. But today, our infrastructure, Europe's, is in better shape, and the eastern states are even newer. They went post-industrial relatively recently, so their network infrastructure is almost as new as the shiny new stuff in Shanghai and New Delhi. So there's the constant jockeying for position between three hyperpowers while the USA takes time out. And you live in one of those powers, in case you hadn't noticed. Charles Stross is the author of Singularity Sky, Accelerando, The Family
0: Trade, The Hidden Family, The Clan Corporate, The Merchants' War, Glasshouse, The Atrocity Archives, and The Jennifer Morgue, and... Iron Sunrise. Yep. (laughs) His newest novel is Halting State. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you very much, Rick. Your newest novel is set in the world of massive multiplayer online role-playing games. What I wanted to know is I don't really understand that much about these games myself as they exist now. I've seen the only evidence I've ever seen of their existence is a couple of glances at screenshots when my Son, who was playing was immersed in World of Warcraft a couple of years
1: ago. So I'm wondering if you could maybe describe what they're like now. World of Warcraft is still one of the best-selling uh, MMOs at present, with a user base measured in multiple millions of people. I think the key insight to understand about massively multiplayer online worlds is they're the first commercially viable virtual realities. Um, back in the 1980s, when William Gibson was writing Neuromancer, and talking about cyberspace, um, he was looking more at something along the lines of a virtual reality environment than um, the web and the internet as it it exists today. Um, Again, Neil Stevenson's Metaverse from Snow Crash in 1992 is another virtual world. Interestingly, the Metaverse is almost explicitly modelled in Linden Lab's Second Life, which is not a game so much as a place to be, and which itself has a few million users, But the key insight is that there are multiple people in these virtual worlds and they're commercially successful, which is something that has never happened before with VR. Do you know how much money is is in this business right now? The gaming business is picking up momentum to the point where its aggregate turnover is exceeding that of the Hollywood movie industry. There are more games produced per year and the per-game budget is rather lower than a movie – But at the high end, it costs as much to produce a new computer game as it does to produce a mid-budget Hollywood movie. And it is one of the fastest-growing and largest entertainment formats on the planet. Do you know how much of the bandwidth of the internet right now is consumed by these kind of games? Probably not that much overall. I mean, the big bandwidth hogs are in order. Peer-to-peer file sharing, which has about 80% of the internet bandwidth, followed by spam. Really? <laughs> yeah. But gaming is catching up. The one important thing to remember is the games are designed so that a lot of the software and information for the games to run is stored on your own computer. And they only want to transfer information over the internet when they have to. Because that way they're not going to be bottlenecked by somebody else clogging it up with spam or by you using a slow modem.
0: One of the things that struck me when I was reading this book was uh, some of the details about the games is that one of your characters knows that even a really cheesy game, that that there can be some art, great art kind of buried in within the
1: details. I thought that was a
0: really interesting
1: observation. Yeah, games are a new artistic vessel. They've been slowly getting there since the early 1970s. There are three actual parallel evolutionary courses that have brought us to where we've got today. The first was the graphical computer games that started with the first Lunar Lander simulator in the early 1960s, played on mini-computers by PhDs working on the first basics of computer graphics. These were followed sort of by things like Space Invaders, which are basically games of hand-eye coordination. They're not profound, they don't have a big plot, you're just shooting down aliens. Secondly, the tabletop role-playing game field, which was sort of ...invented to a large extent by Gary Gygax at TSR Hobbies in the 1970s with Dungeons & Dragons... brought a lot more complexity and layering to that variety of gaming. Dungeons & Dragons should need no introduction. It revolutionised the board gaming field. And it allowed creative input and plot development and character for that matter to be... ...built by millions of amateur storytellers, DMs and game designers... ...who were sort of bolting together scenarios for their friends... Finally, the third lineage for gaming comes from the early text adventures. This started with Don Craver and, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Craver and Woods, and the Colossal Cave Adventure, which they wrote in the early to mid-1970s on a university mainframe, and which in turn spawned the entire genre of the Infocom text adventures, things like Zork. Um, you're left, you're lost in a maze of twisty little passages all alike. You're eaten by a Gru. This is actual narrative. What they did was they built what is effectively a basic generator for storylines and plots with a whole bunch of pre-canned maps and background and put it in a black box in front of you. Um, This thing talks to you in the second person incidentally, uh, which is why I adopted that format for Halting State. These three convergent origins of computer games meshed together from the 1980s onwards. First of all, we had the adventure games like Colossal Cave, then graphics began being added so you could see where you were in the game. And finally, we had increasingly sophisticated tools to turn the game into effectively a toolkit for running um, somebody else's game scenario that had been invented, the content generation thing. Um, for example, Neverwinter Nights is a faithful implementation of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons version 3 rules in such a way that you know, ordinary players, with the aid of some software tools that come with the game, can build their own scenarios. They aren't simple captives of the game they bought from a company anymore. Now, multiplayer gaming is another kettle of fish entirely. One of the problems that has beset computer gaming from the outset has been how do you make the computer a interesting and creative adversary? You can put all the pre-canned maps and monsters you like into a computer, but if the computer behaves like a zombie, it's not going to be much fun for the players. A lot of effort has gone into gaming artificial intelligence, whereby the game has some degree of AI and can anticipate the player's moves and act creatively. But by far the cheapest way to get intelligence into a game is to put other human beings in the loop. In other words, to play against other people rather than a machine. In... Massively multiplayer online games, they have carefully, to some extent, designed the social milieu so that when you have many players, they will belong to different, not necessarily friendly tribes. There's a lot of canned content, dungeons to explore, traps, pitfalls, lost temples, and so forth. But there's also hostiles, and the hostiles are smart, because they're other players.
0: This creates a a virtual online community, and I'm wondering if you could talk about some of these communities again as they exist today are, are you a gamer do you do, you, do you, and do you play in these i games? try
1: to avoid gaming like the plague because if i fall off a wagon on a new computer game i wake up two weeks later with aching wrists
0: <laughs> yes that's to a problem
1: a, to a very large extent i was working by hanging out with gamers by observing gamers and by trying desperately not to fall off a wagon myself, because I tend to go a bit addictive over gaming. I used to do an awful lot of Dungeons and Dragons in my teens and youth. Um, Yes, there's a sense of community. People regularly play together. They will log on at the same time and work in teams or in clans and go attack the same puzzles. The games companies have, to a large extent, actually des- designed the games around this so that there are... Problem areas, tasks to accomplish, that can only be accomplished via teamwork. It's not solitary play anymore. One of the big revolutions that is beginning to hit gaming now is teleconferencing, whereby you can have a microphone and headset and talk to others, rather than just using internet chat on the keyboard, so that you can coordinate your moves better. Um, one of the next things that's going to come this way is the use of real-time speech filtering so that you sound – if you're playing the part of a blood elf, you sound like a blood elf, not like somebody in a basement in Kansas City.
0: Let's talk about Halting State. It's mm-hmm. set 10 years in the future or so.
1: 11? 11. 10 or 11, yes.
0: And you, the reason you did this, I, I understand, is because you wanted to have gaming as having been –
1: rolled out to the mass populace. What
0: happens when the technology gets out among, among
1: more yeah. people? Okay, for starters, it's very hard to write science fiction about the near future. You're offering hostages to fortune. I kept looking over my shoulder when writing Halting State because bits of it look dangerously close to coming true. We, c- we can, however, in some respects, writing about the near future is not that difficult because we can project forward Moore's Law and know roughly how powerful our mobile phones and PCs will be in 10 years' time. Knowing how powerful they are... That gives us a handle on what sort of algorithms, what sort of computer processes they can carry out, and therefore what we can expect of them, which in turn tells us what they can do with gaming. And I noticed something very interesting. Mobile phones are actually pretty good computers these days. They lag about five years behind desktop computers. In ten years' time, a typical mobile phone will have the computing power of today's high-end gaming PCs. This will be combined with 4G mobile telephony, which is promising us 100 megabits per second of data constantly to your mobile phone. This is actually in development now. It's the next but one generation of telephony.
0: When you started
1: writing Halting State, did
0: you sit down and start to like make all these kind of Moore's Law calculations yourself? Yes, you I did. did. Wow. I also
1: I then went and bounced them off various people who work in the games industry to see what they thought was totally implausible and what they thought was plausible. And I went with what they thought was plausible, and then I also went with some of what they thought was implausible, because they're slightly too close to the coalface. One of the things that occurred to me is mobile phones are held back by two bottlenecks. One is how you get data into them. You know, a numeric keypad is nothing like a computer's mouse and keyboard. And the other thing they're held back with is how you get data out of them. They can talk to you, but the screens are appalling. But I began doing some more research into wireless networking and realised there are technologies that are coming in now like wireless USB that have enough bandwidth to let you wear a small display like the display on the back of your camera for example over each eye imagine a pair of glasses they're solid when they're switched off they're black inside each eye is a screen it's about the same display resolution as your laptop screen on the outside of each screen there's a camera facing outwards again the camera is the size of a dime these are your glasses if you're short sighted, they look, show the scenery around you and they correct for your visual defect. If you're at a ball game, suddenly you've got a pair of zoom lenses. If you're wandering about after dark, they give you image intensification and night sights. This sort of glass would be really handy, wouldn't it? It would replace your conventional lens optics made out of transparent me- transparent glass. And then the entire world would be tra- transformed into glasses wearing geeks. It yeah. would finally be the norm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And when you add wireless communications to a mobile phone, suddenly you have a 3D high-resolution graphics console in front of you, and the beauty of it is, you can walk around with it. If you're staring at a blank wall, you can see whatever the computer's trying to show you, but there's a fairly simple graphical trip called compositing, which is used in Windows Vista and on the Mac to blend together different layers, so that... You could rig your glasses so that if something is moving around you, it'll appear to blur forward through whatever spreadsheet or word processing document you're looking at, so that you can actually walk around and use these things in bright daylight without risking being run over. Now, have you, I know I've actually seen these kind
0: of display oriented glasses that claim to have about the same, um, the 1080 by
1: 640, or some whatever the resolution is. Have you tried those yet yourself? I've tried this sort of thing. I don't have a pair. They're pretty expensive. They're mostly for specialised applications. The earliest consumers of them are, for example, people like the United States Army and the Air Force with head-up displays. But I think they're going to burst out of there sooner or later. The military will be big consumers of these. You can imagine the demand from Iraq, for example, for soldiers with glasses that act as binoculars and image intensifiers and night vision goggles all in one.
0: Of course, yeah. Um, Save so lives.
1: that's going to drive the commercialization of it. And from there to hooking it up to our mobile phones is just a very short step, especially when the mobile phones are as powerful as today's high-end computers. Well, sure. Then you can just pump your entire population full of a continuous yeah. stream of advertising. And there's more to it than that because one of the other things that's coming into our mobile phones is GPS data. Your mobile phone knows where you are. This is already in your mobile phone in the form of an E911 service, whereby if you dial 911, the operators can query your phone and it will tell them where you are. To within 50 metres or so. We're getting better at location. Most high-end mobile phones have GPS built in now. The European company Nokia have announced that in future all their new phones will have GPS as standard, and they'll make money off this by selling mapping software. This gives us very interesting possibilities. One is we're about to see a step change in how people work, as big as the pocket calculator in the 1970s. You must be familiar with young people who just cannot add up or do basic arithmetic. They grew up with calculators. I have two of them as children. We are now moving towards a generation who will not know what it is like to be lost. They will always know where they are. They will always be able to find their way to somewhere else where they want to be. But they will also never be able to be
0: lost. And that's the, the flip side of this, is that uh, is unless steal surveillance. Their phone.
1: Yeah, unless somebody steals their phone or they mm. switch it off, you can always take the battery out. That's they what your characters have that. to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, there are other social implications of this. You've seen Google Earth. Google Earth is a very interesting program that supplies orbital satellite data. It gives you a map of the world that you can zoom in on indefinitely. And people can create what are called overlays. These are sort of maps where, for a given coordinate, they have tagged the map with additional information. For example, the location of a good bar or a public swimming bath or something or other else, or where their house is. If you merge this with GPS, you can go one step further. You can have a system that informs you of information attached to an overlay when you move over it. In other words, your phone will bring information that's linked to your physical locale to your attention. Um, an awful lot of interesting stuff stems from this. For example, there's another strain of gaming that hasn't yet really been computerised. It's a live-action role-playing game where you dress up as war- medieval warriors and hit each other with fibreglass swords for a weekend. Imagine for a moment, though, if everybody is equipped with these rather interesting glasses I've been describing and location data. You can, in principle, envisage a game system which will overlay your view of the office around you with a dungeon, replace the secretary on the front desk with a ravening monster, and you are, in fact, walking through Dungeons and Dragons or Discworld
0: or and, Star Trek. And I have to take a, a moment here to identify one of the things about science fiction literature that... I, it's I think very particular to science fiction literature is the shout out, and you do a few of them in this book. You actually mention we, we you give us uh, Pratchett uh, and Discworld right right there in the narrative. And you also mention uh one of my favorite uh, Scottish crime writers, I believe, Christopher Brookmeyer of course. Had to be done. had to be done. <laughs> and you also took us back
1: to the uh, site of the Glasgow World con. Yeah, well, it is actually the National Exhibition Center, so that's my excuse for going there. <laughs>
0: and finally, um, everybody's favorite uh, proto-science fiction writer, you give us Room 101 again. Which is five in binary. <laughs> right. As, as one of your characters uh, is astute enough to notice. He is a programmer. Let's talk about the setup of this book. It's a It's a fascinating setup, and I'm wondering, has it happened yet?
1: i am not aware of a game like spooks if i am aware of a game like spooks i think um no no i'm am not talking <laughs> about spooks i'm talking about avalon uh, oh, the, the, the original the, the the very beginning of the book that okay um what occurred to me is one of the, one of the things that is ha- going to happen in mmos in the next few years i've been speaking to some game developers about it there are a number of i guess second level games where they buy the rights to use software that another company has developed for their own game, and build their own content for it. And one of the logical endpoints, there's a limit to how much realism you need to apply to a gaming engine. We're not there yet, but there will come a point where they are effectively photorealistic, where you're walking for a Hollywood movie. At that point... There isn't any real incentive for a company to develop a new games engine of their own if they just want to sell content and make money. Rather, they could well license an existing game platform. In the world of Halting State, there are only actually about two gaming platforms out there, but there are a multitude of different games which work within them. In much the same way, there are already areas within Second Life where people have set up various types of battle or space game. But by the... Second Life was not designed as a gaming platform as such, but you can play games within it. Um, And I'm envisaging here a whole set of uh, different things going on. In particular, the company that is at the focus of Halting State, Hayek Associates, is an economics consultancy. They run central banks. Computer games have very, very odd economics, because you've got players who are constantly grinding away. They're looting looting monsters, acquiring magic items, getting money... What are they going to do with it? One of the side effects of this is computer games are actually inflationary by nature. They undergo hyperinflation because the um, games company has to keep feeding new treasure in to keep the players interested. So the pleasure sort of builds up. How do you take it out of a picture without making the game stop being fun? Because that's the killer for the actual game. If a game is no longer fun, players will stop playing it. So... One of the obvious things is there will be economics consultancies who specialize in stabilizing the economies in, of in-game worlds in such a way that the games continue to be fun without actually succumbing to various weird economic forces such as hyperinflation. Or stagflation as you oh, talk yeah. about.
0: In this world, in your world actually, everything is a technology. It doesn't matter what it is. Every single thing is a technology whether it's economics or even the the, um, the technology of uh, fraud. There's a really great rap that one of your characters gives, Elaine, about how to escape from a swoop and squat.
1: Yeah. Um, we live in a technological world, and as Canadian SF writer Carl Schrader puts it, technologies are not value-neutral. They come with political implications attached. If you don't adopt the technology, you're not subject to it, but they impose certain mindsets and and attitudes on us by virtue of actually using them. In the world of Halting State, we've got a a whole bunch of technologies interacting that have, if anything, turned gaming into a component of everyday life for an awful lot of people. Many of us are actually role-playing our way through society anyway. We're playing at doing our jobs, we're playing at being whoever we are or whatever role in society we think we're occupying. It's just that nobody ever catches us out. Um, to some extent, we think about this and call it imposter syndrome, but it's not actually imposter syndrome. We're all play-acting the role that we envisage that we should be occupying. And this gets us back to the
0: second person, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, That's a That was a really interesting decision, and I'm kind of surprised your editor let you get away with it. Did you have some discussions about this?
1: Uh, yes. In fact, my books are sold separately in the U.S. and the U.K., And while my American editor was willing to take a gamble on it, she did insist on it being a two-book contract, and the other book would be something nice and sedate. (laughs) Really? In the UK, they were even more wary of it, and in the end only really bought it when they could see the finished product.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So you just went ahead and forged ahead in the second person and hoped that they would buy it.
1: Oh, I had several sweaty palm moments, and it was two months late going in in the end when I did have dinner with my editor afterwards in New York, she gave me a very odd look and said, you know, I really wasn't sure you could do this. I, well, I think it works magnificently. It's it's really enjoyable.
0: A- and this gets us to the another aspect of this book that I found really fascinating, the language. For those of us who are Americans, at least, this is a really odd mix because it, it's hard to tell where the Scottish brogue ends and where the near-future stuff picks up, where the IT dialect starts and where the
1: IT dialect ends, where the gamers starts and the gamers ends. Actually, it's IT stroke speak as it is spoken in Scotland today. Well, Scottish isn't sort of pickled in aspic. It's an actual living language. um, In much the same way that you could talk in terms of uh, a movie produced at set in, say, Dallas with a Southern or Texan accent, you wouldn't use the uh, language as it was spoken in the 1850s or out of a John Wayne movie. You'd go for something contemporary. This is, to some extent, contemporary Scots. Um, I was, to some extent, leaned on to tone it down a little for the the American and the English readers uh, by my editors, but um, this is very much sort of how it works today. Well, I have to ask you about one of my favorite words...
0: When you refer to a group of people as a shower. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Tell me about that word. That's That's so great. That's a generic English term. It's been around for years. I'd have to go and look it up in a dictionary. Really? (laughs) Um, I was making no concessions to a specifically American readership when I wrote this book. I wrote it in British English with Scots dialect and Tech dialect. Um, Many of my books are, to some extent, written and edited for an American audience. This one isn't.
0: Well, it's really enjoyable, and it's very funny. W- w- I have to ask about some of the neologisms. One of my favorite was ARFing. Is that something you made up, or is that
1: actually out there now? It's out there now. came to me by way of Boing Boing and Cory Doctoro. RFID, or Radio Frequency Identification Chips, inventory control tags that respond to radio, they're out there now. Walmart are using them. They are, to some extent, known as ARFIDs. Thank you, Bruce Sterling, for putting a rather sinister insect-resonating name on top of a widget that Walmart would much rather be thought of as just a new form of barcode. Um, The reason for that is that you can query them remotely with a handheld radio device. And if somebody hasn't been taking the RFID chips out of their clothing, you can tell what they're wearing through a wall. Or not wearing. Or not. And um, our thing in this case is the practice of... Looking up for inform- looking for information via this medium, sort of querying people and the environment around them, and snooping for inventory control tags and any information stored in them.
0: Your novel begins with a a, a most unusual robbery, <laughs> so I want you to describe this robbery to us and, and why it has, what the implications of it are.
1: Well, it's a robbery of a central bank. A bunch of bank robbers burst into the bank, loot the vaults, and march out. What makes this unusual is that the robbers are orcs. There are 50 of them, and they've brought a dragon along for fire support. What makes the bank unusual is it's the central bank in Avalon IV, a multiplayer online fantasy game. And the real worry is that Avalon IV's central bank is run by Hayek Associates, a start-up company devoted to stabilizing the economies of computer games. They've just gone public, they're preparing for their secondary flotation, and it looks at first sight like insider trading because it should not be possible for these orcs to have looted the central vault of a bank. This has some really interesting economic implications in the real
0: world. Tell us how you turned this virtual robbery into a plot device with with um, crime fiction
1: implications. The starting point was a very interesting paper that I heard being discussed a couple of years ago on the internet. Somebody had noticed that for some of these MMOs, for example, World of Warcraft, characters were s- people who were playing it were selling magic items and loot in game to other players, and in some cases they were doing it via eBay or other sources for cash. Um, The people who were investigating this and writing the paper were economists and uh, sociologists and they took one look at this and thought, hmm, how much is a vorpal blade worth in dollars? And they figured out just how much these magic items were selling for. Then they were able to make an estimate based on the number of players of the game and the average level of their characters on how much loot there was in the game. Then they multiplied one by the other and were shocked silly when they realised that if the game's in-game assets were converted to real-world money at the prevailing exchange rate, which of course is actually a nonsense, it would have depressed the exchange rate rapidly, but for maximum yield, the game was already worth more than the economy of Austria. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Absolutely. Other weird phenomena have begun coming out of the gaming biz. I'm told that a couple of years ago, a fellow walked into a police station in London to make a complaint about a crime. I want to complain because I was sold a magic sword, and it's not magic, he told the desk sergeant. It took them a couple of hours to actually get it sorted out and realise he wasn't a time waster or a lunatic. He had bought a magic sword on eBay for an MMO, and when he received it, it was not in fact a magic sword as described. It was an ordinary sword.
0: Well, did, was he able to press the complaint and yeah, prosecute? fraud?
1: Oh, really? Yeah, um, you know, goods not goods, money taken for goods which were not as described. Well, this is fascinating. And one of the, the big thrusts of this book that I really like was
0: was the idea of IT meets LE, and there's a lot of that in this book, with the uh, the influence of information technology
1: and law enforcement. Tell us a little bit about cop space. I I love this idea. Well, we know the police have huge amounts of data anyway in databases. A lot of this is coordinated geographically. For example, crime reports that list addresses. Um, Crime reports where there is somebody who has been convicted of a crime and they know where he lives. Um, One of the side effects of geographical location and the imaging systems I was talking about earlier are that you can map the contents of an awful lot of these databases into a geographical information system and show it as an overlay. And you can see the police loving this. They put their glasses on and they can see cop space overlaid over the real world. And they can see, you know, there was a mugging at that uh, street corner. That convenience store has been held up twice in the past two months. That fellow over there, well, once the image recognition in the glasses has kicked in, we happen to know that he's under a community service order and isn't allowed within 200 yards of schools, and so on. Please join me for the second part of the podcast of my interview with
0: Charles Strauss. It will be podcast on January 1st, 2008.